When I was in seventh grade, I played Pop Warner football, or Little League football, or whatever you call it. I played center, like Bill Curry, whom I met as a 10-year-old at Georgia Tech and who became a hero of mine. But I had a football coach who was my coach, whom I loved. This coach believed in me and he loved me and he helped to build me up and he helped to make me feel good about myself during an otherwise difficult time in my childhood. And this coach gave me a nickname. He didn't give any other offensive lineman a nickname, but he gave me a nickname and I could not have been prouder of it. He called me Mad Dog. <laughs> I've heard players say of great coaches, like, you know, Nick Saban or Pat Dye or Vince Dooley or Bobby Dodd, coaches like that. I've heard them say, I would run through a brick wall for that man. Well, I know that feeling. Um, because this coach made me feel that way. I was proud to be called Mad Dog and it brought me great joy to do what this coach asked me to do. It brought me great joy to make my coach happy. I want you to hold on to that thought. Put a pin in it. We'll come back to it later. But in today's scripture, there is a rich man who is going away on a trip. He's very rich. While he's gone, he gives a considerable amount of money to three of his servants. Now, these were likely well-educated accountants or businessmen or entrepreneurs who worked for him. They likely helped to manage his estate, his fortune. And while he's gone, he's giving each of them a certain amount of money to invest, a certain amount of talents to invest. Now, right away we have a problem because the word talent has entered the English language directly from the Greek word that Jesus uses in this parable. We use the word talent today because it comes from the Bible. But the way we use it today isn't what Jesus meant when he used it. In Jesus's day, a talent was a measurement of money, literally worth about 75 pounds of gold. If you want to think of it this way, a talent was the largest denomination of currency in Jesus's day. So do you know, for instance, what the largest denomination of currency is in the United States? It's a $100 bill. That's not too much anymore. But back in 1969, before the Federal Reserve stopped printing it, the largest denomination was, get this, a $10,000 bill. That's a little closer to what Jesus is talking about when he talks about a talent, except a talent was actually much, much more than $10,000. It was about 20 years wages for an average laborer. So even one talent was an enormous sum of money equal to about $700,000 today. Can you imagine? The servant 
who received five talents received three and a half million dollars. But let's not pity the poor servant who only gets one measly talent because 700 grand is nothing, nothing to sneeze at. So notice the first two servants invested or traded with or started businesses with or put money to work in some way with the, the, the talents that they received. And by the time their master returned, each of them had doubled the master's investment, a 100% return on investment. That's pretty darn good, wouldn't you say? The third servant, however, doesn't do anything with his talent besides bury it in the ground. Now, he explains why in, in verses 24 and 25. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. Notice the servant is quite literally wrong about his master's character. He says the master reaps where he does not sow and gathers where he has scattered no seed. No, he doesn't. On the contrary, the master is the one who gives the servants these enormous sums of money in the first place. Take this money, do something with it, invest it, put it to work, trade with it. That is the definition of sowing and scattering seed. If the third servant is to be believed, the master is taking what doesn't belong to him and keeping it for himself. But that's a lie because these eight talents, they come from the master in the first place. This scripture is often preached during stewardship season in church. And if I were preaching it that way, I would emphasize this important point. Every good thing that you possess comes as a gift from God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Psalm 24, 1. What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Every good and Every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James 1.17 Therefore, what the three servants each received before the master went on this trip were gifts of sheer grace. They were gifts of grace. The talents represent gifts of grace that God gives us. And so it is with us. We possess nothing good that doesn't ultimately come from God, including every part of our lives. God literally cannot ask us for something that he did not sow within us or create within us. But it's possible that the third servant saw that the other two servants were given more than he was given, maybe, and a part of his resentment, a part of his anger, a part of his unhappiness, which he directs toward his master, is based on the perception that he isn't being treated fairly. I mean, what do you say to that? None of these three servants deserved 
anything that they received. So on what basis would any of them have to complain? I mean, in my own life, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the vast majority of my unhappiness in life, um, it comes not from what God has actually given me, but from what God has given someone else, which he did not also give me. Do, do you know what I'm saying? I want what other people have. Never mind that what I've been given is perfect for me. Never mind that what God has given me has been custom designed by God and perfectly suited for me and for my life. Can I tell you something funny? For, for many years, I was an associate pastor at a large church in Alpharetta. I was in charge of our church's contemporary worship service. I planned it. I preached at it every week. Well, in Alpharetta, at least back then, um, when you are involved in um, a contemporary service as I was, you are, you are always going to be in the shadow of Andy Stanley and the North Point Community Church. And in our church, I mean, I felt like I was um, literally and figuratively in the shadow of Andy Stanley and North Point because I was often compared favorably, but usually unfavorably to Andy Stanley. I mean, objectively speaking, uh, North Point is one of the largest and most successful churches in America. Andy Stanley is obviously one of the most gifted preachers around. Um, so if my people didn't like me in Alpharetta, they, they would just go over to North Point. And of course, a few, of, a few people from North Point would trickle over to us sometimes. But, but, but I was used to being compared, usually in a negative way, <laughs> with this incredibly gifted preacher and leader. I mean, how could I measure up to him? Well, as many of you know, I was adopted, and back around that same time, I got in touch with my birth mother, Linda, for the first time. And Linda was very happy to find out that I was a pastor, and she would sometimes come and hear me preach, and she would just lay it on thick about how much uh, she liked my preaching. One day, uh, Linda, who lived in North Carolina, called me out of the blue, and she said, I, I just heard the best preacher I've ever heard. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I don't know how that's possible because she didn't just hear me, right? <laughs> but she, but I, I think you can see where this is going. She, she said, yeah, I saw him on TV. And you know what? His church is down near where your church is. Um, his name is um, Andy Stanley. Have you heard of him? <laughs> Do, do you know that name, she asked? I mean, he is so good. <laughs> and I'm like, I know Andy Stanley. Everybody loves Andy Stanley. And I remember grumbling about it back then. But why? Give me one reason, one good reason that I should resent Andy Stanley. By all means, God gave him 
five talents at least, whereas God gave me one or less. But what I have is infinitely more than I deserve. And what I have is, hear me say this, what I have is perfectly suited, custom designed, custom tailored for me and for my life. This is what Jesus means in verse 15 when he says that the master gave to each servant according to his ability. What I have wouldn't work for Andy Stanley, but it works for me. After all, who but God could foresee the consequences of God possibly giving me the same gifts of grace that he gave to Andy Stanley? God probably knows that if he did give me those same gifts, those gifts would destroy me. That that level of objective worldly success, the sheer numbers, the TV audience, the size of his platform, it would go straight to my head. It would inflate my ego even more than it already is, and it would ruin me. My pride couldn't handle it, and God knows that about me. So instead of looking over my shoulder and comparing the gifts of grace that I've received with the gifts of grace that others have received. I need to trust that God has given me precisely those gifts of grace that I need, which, according to his word, he has. See, here's where the third servant also gets it wrong. He simply doesn't believe that his master knows what's best for him or wants what's best for him. This gift of grace, this one talent, feels like a burden to this servant, not a gift. The servant doesn't want to have responsibility for it. He wants to do his own thing. He wants to live life on his own terms. He doesn't want to have to answer to his master, so he does the absolute bare minimum. He digs a hole and he bur buries that talent in the ground where at least it should be safe for when his master returns. If I bury this talent I won't have to give it a second thought. It will be out of sight, out of mind. In fact, if I bury what my master gave me, I won't have to give him a second thought either. He will also be out of sight, out of mind. See, this man resents his master. He hates him. His actions prove it. And yet we read this parable and we feel sorry for the poor guy because the master is giving him his fondest, his fondest wish for all eternity to be completely free from his master's care and concern, to be separated from his master forever. The master is giving the servant exactly what he wants. By contrast, Consider the other two servants' attitudes. Look at verse 16. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. The key words are at once or immediately. This implies a sense of excitement on the part of the first two servants, a sense of 
anticipation, a sense of joy. In fact, these first two servants remind me of that Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. After talking with Jesus for a while, she realizes whom she's talking to. And what does she do? The Bible says she left her water jar at the well, the very reason she went to the well in the first place. She forgot all about that. In her excitement, she leaves the jar at the well and she rushes back to town. And according to John chapter 4, she literally tells everybody there about Jesus. Why? Because what she found in Jesus was infinitely better than even her most basic human need for water. So, of course, she forgot her water jar. Or remember Zacchaeus, that wee little man, the tax collector despised by his fellow townspeople, who climbs a sycamore tree to see Jesus over the crowd of people. But Jesus calls him by name, and the Bible says, so Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received Jesus joyfully. And then when Jesus comes to Zacchaeus' house, he tells Jesus he's going to give away half of his wealth and he's going to pay back four times, four times the amount of money that he has cheated anybody out of. Why? Because what he found in Jesus was infinitely better than money. So, of course, he was willing to give the money away. Or remember the former prostitute in Luke chapter 7. She crashes a dinner party uh, where Simon the Pharisee is dining with Jesus. And she is making a scene in front of others. She's anointing Jesus' feet with her tears. She's using expensive ointment. She's showing gratitude and honor to Jesus by kissing his feet. Everyone's gossiping about her. She's embarrassing herself as far as the guests at the party are concerned. Why? Because what she found in Jesus was infinitely better than her livelihood, her earthly treasure, and her reputation. She didn't care what people like Simon thought of her. So, of course, she served Jesus in, in this way. And see, that's what all three are doing. The Samaritan woman, Zacchaeus, the former prostitute. This is what they had in common. They served Jesus by all means. I mean, you give, you give away half your wealth, that's far more than just a tithe. You give it away to the church. Um, we would all agree that's serving Jesus, right? I mean, the Samaritan woman is literally the most effective evangelist in all of the New Testament. Thanks to her witness, her entire village came to believe in Jesus. I mean, the Apostle Paul reached more people in his ministry, but he also faced a lot of rejection along the way. Not this woman. <laughs> she was batting a thousand when it came to her efforts at evangelism. We all agree that's serving Jesus. And the former prostitute, she was literally serving Jesus in the most humble way imaginable. She was performing the most humble act of service that even a slave in the first century could perform. She was washing a guest's feet 
when he comes to someone's house for dinner. These people served and they served and they served by all means. But their service, like the service of the first two servants in the parable, was characterized by joy and excitement. Was it hard for them to serve Jesus in this way? That's like asking, was it hard for them to do the thing that they wanted to do more than any other thing? Of course not. It made them happy to serve Jesus in this way. They wouldn't want to do anything other than serve him in this way. And it was for the sake of of their own happiness, their own pleasure, their own satisfaction, their own joy, that these servants did what they did for their master in either the parable or in real life. Do you see that? Being a Christian, loving Jesus, following Jesus, obeying Jesus, doing His will, indeed, uh, serving Jesus is meant to bring us a deeper and more lasting kind of happiness than is otherwise available in this world. It's okay to want that kind of happiness that comes from Christ alone. Jesus gives us permission to want the kind of happiness that comes from Him alone. In fact, Jesus says in this parable that we ought to pursue Pursue the kind of happiness that comes from him alone. Somewhere along the way, you see, I'm afraid that too many of us have gotten the message that serving Jesus is hard. It's unpleasant. It's at least something that, all things being equal, we're not supposed to want to do. I mean, yes, we do it, but only because we have to or only because we're supposed to. But mostly we think serving Jesus is something that disrupts our happiness. It's something that we do instead of being happy. Um, Happiness, as far as we're concerned, is living a life devoted completely to ourselves and not to Jesus. So, like the third servant, we do the bare minimum sometimes. We, We dig our hole in the ground. I mean, give the servant credit. That probably was a few hours of hard work on his part. A few hours of serving his master in order to keep his master's fortune safe. And I'll bet he resented every minute of it. Every scoop of dirt he shoveled. I bet he was cursing under his breath, wishing that he were doing literally anything else. But give him credit At least he served Jesus. I said earlier um, that once the third servant finished burying his talent, his master was out of sight, out of mind. Contrast that with the other two. They doubled their master's talents. They made an enormous amount of money for their master. Many of you are successful business people and professional people in different walks of life. You know that in order to to make that kind of return, these men had to commit their lives to it. You know it would take all their time, talent, energy, skill, creativity, wits to do that. 
It would require them to think constantly about their master and his talents. It would require them to be preoccupied with their master. And as I said earlier, the evidence in the text is that they did so with eagerness. They did so with excitement. They did so happily. They did so with joy. And they did so not because they were selfless martyrs who gritted their teeth and and worked hard for this very demanding boss. That's not why Jesus said they did it. They did it because they loved their master, obviously, and they did it for the sake of the joy that they themselves would experience from pleasing their master. It brought them joy to please their master. But maybe that's an understatement. That's putting it too mildly. Remember I said earlier that the gifts of grace that God has given me, while by all means less than some and more than others, these gifts are exactly the right amount of gifts for me. Why are they the right amount. I mean, what are, what are these gifts of grace meant to accomplish within me such that if I had any more or any less, um, they would not accomplish within me? I hope that makes sense. I didn't ask that very well. These gifts of grace that God has given me are meant to enable me to do what each of these first two servants did. They're meant to enable me to enter into the joy of my master. In other words, they're meant to enable me to enter into the joy of my Lord Jesus. That's an unimaginable amount of joy because literally no one who has ever lived on this earth has experienced more joy than Jesus. You heard me right. No one has experienced more joy than him. And the thought that we get to enter into or experience that same joy for ourselves, that is incomprehensible. But maybe you don't believe me that Jesus was so joyful. I mean, that he's known more joy than anyone who's ever lived. I need you to look at something if that's the case. If you have your Bibles, and you should, I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Let's just look at the first two verses. This is what the author writes. Therefore, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why, according to this scripture, did Jesus endure the cross? For the joy that was set 
before him. He did it all for joy. Well, the, the joy of rescuing sinners like us from our sins and making us a part of his family for eternity, that brought him joy. And the, the joy of bringing glory to his Father, that's why he lived. That brought him joy. The joy of pleasing his Father. Now think about it. Jesus endured the mocking and the insults and the spitting and the whipping. He endured the most painful, violent, hideous form of torture and execution that the world had ever known. Crucifixion. And as part of his crucifixion, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which means on the cross, Jesus endured separation from his Father, which is hell itself. And what Hebrews says here in verse 2 is that the joy that Jesus knew on the other side of the cross made all of his suffering. It made the hell that he endured, it made his death completely worth it. The magnitude of the joy that Jesus experienced, in other words, was greater than the magnitude of his suffering. And Jesus wants to give us that Joy. He wants us to experience that joy. If we understand what Jesus is offering us, how could we not happily work for that joy? Such that the idea of merely serving Jesus while true is beside the point serve Jesus. Well, I mean, I couldn't imagine doing anything else because of the joy that it brings me to do so. I began this sermon talking about how proud and happy I was for my coach to call me by a very special name. Can you imagine how proud and happy I'll be when my Lord calls me by a name that is infinitely more precious. I want my Lord Jesus to call me good and faithful servant. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're in the Toccoa, Georgia area, I hope that you will come and worship with us at Toccoa First. We have live in-person worship every week and we also have online worship. Please see tocoafirstumc.org for more information.